Praise God. I'd like to ask you this morning to open your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And we are going back into the throne room, back into the whole aspect of the holiness of God. Yeah, I want to praise the Lord uh, for allowing me to speak on this subject. Um, uh, I'm about as unqualified as unqualified could be. I'll never forget the words of, of Todd. You know, one year Todd and I went to Shepherd's Conference, and I forgot who it was that spoke, but he spoke, a, I think it was Steve Lawson spoke a resounding message. And I said to Todd, we're walking out of the sanctuary, and I said to Todd, I go, I feel so inadequate. And Todd pats me on the shoulder. He goes, don't worry, you are. <laughs> and it's so true. It's so true. There's an inadequacy here to address the holiness of God. Uh, I was telling somebody recently that uh, last week's sermon um, was probably one of the most difficult, difficult messages for me ever to prepare because every time you're encountered, you encounter the holiness of God, what is it? It's a mirror to your unrighteousness. It's a mirror to your sinfulness. So every step you go deeper, there's another deepness that says, how far are we separated from the holiness of God? To speak of the holiness of God is really a mixture of terror. It's a mixture of fear, reverence, awe, and deep deep, deep conviction. Yet in the midst of this experiential truth, because that's exactly what it is, there's a beauty in discovering the true, holy, awesome God. And this is the God spoken of in the Scriptures. Last week we learned several things as we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. We learned several things regarding the holiness of God. We learned that the word holy means sacred. And we realized that God is holy, therefore God is sacred. And we learned that God is sacred and holy because God is separate. He is separate from his creatures. Um, God is unique and he's unique in his essence. He's he is unique in his very nature. God is unique that he's not like human beings. So God is separate. We also learn that God is majestic in holiness. He is majestically, uh, his, his majesty is unique and God's majesty is one of a kind. His purity, his moral purity, his ethical purity is one of a kind. Because God is holy, Therefore, all God decrees, all, everything that God says is holy, just, righteous, and true. And God says a lot in this book. And every word is holy, righteous, and true. And we read that God was identified by the seraphim, right, in verse 3, as holy, holy, holy. Of all the attributes of God, what gets thundered throughout the heavens is the holiness of God. And as I mentioned earlier, when you're confronted with this truth, something happens to the believer in Christ. Something has to happen. And when we are forced to look into the face of the Most High Holy God, 
our sin becomes clearer, His righteousness becomes clearer, God's holiness shines brighter, conviction enters our hearts, and we shrink in the light of God's holiness. By the way, that's a a really good thing, by the way, if you ever had the opportunity to shrink in the light of God's holiness. Today we're going to look at what happened to the prophet Isaiah. So he, he has this experience. What impact did the holiness of God have on the prophet Isaiah? The prophet Isaiah was there in a dark moment in Judah's history. He's confronted with the holy, holiness of God. You know, A.W. Tozer has a, a saying for this. He calls this the crisis of the encounter. And the Puritans used to say that too. It's a crisis of the encounter when sinful man comes into direct contact with a holy and righteous God. I can remember my crisis of encounter. I can remember that despite multiple professions of faith and walking aisles and all the other different things, when God descended upon my life, when God showed me His holiness and His righteousness, it was then and then alone that I repented and cried, cried to Christ to save me. Puritans used to use a term called godly sorrow. Godly sorrow was referred to when someone would come to repentance and faith in Christ. They would come, as Jesus said, mourning after their sin. They would come and saying, is there there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me at the foot of the cross? And that's what we need to see more and more of in the church today. More crisis of the encounters. Believers falling before a holy God and repenting and turning to Christ. We're going to see that Isaiah's response to God's holiness, this will result in in four major impacts in Isaiah's life. It's going to result in a confessing heart. It's going to result in a repentant heart. It's going to result in a sanctified heart. And it's going to result in a servant's heart. And my heart today, honestly, my heart today, that those of us that are here, those of us that may be watching, those of us that may hear this later on, that as we go into the Word of God and we see the holiness of God and the impact it had on this prophet, that my heart is today that it would produce in all of us those four principles of a confessing heart, of a repentant heart, of a sanctified heart, and of a servant's heart. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. And for context, I'm going to pick up with verse 3. And we're going to read through verse 8. Isaiah 6, beginning with verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, said me. I just want to touch on a quick note regarding verse 3 that I don't think I captured last week, right? And that note is this. What is the importance of the three times holy, holy, holy that the angels, the seraphim sing? Now, a lot of people say, well, it's one holy for each member of the Trinity. Could be, could be. But in Old Testament days, and even in first century Palestine, in time of Christ, the standard word when you wanted to emphasize something in the Hebrew was to repeat that word. How many times in the Gospels do you hear Jesus say, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Right? He doesn't say verily. He says verily, verily. And we know from having gone through the Scriptures that every time Jesus says that, that means listen up. Something very, very important is going to come. Jesus said that in John 8, 58, when he said, before Abraham was, he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, hey, Pharisees, listen up, I'm going to make an important point. I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. In the Old Testament, too, we also see this, this multiple reiterating of the same word. A good example is, and you don't have to turn there, it's in Jeremiah 7, 4. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's preaching that God is going to bring judgment. He's calling people to repent. By the way, Jeremiah had no converts. If Jeremiah was a pastor today, the only person in the sanctuary would be Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, as he preached to them, he warns them in Jeremiah chapter 7, he said, Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. There you see that three-time repetition. In other words, what he's saying, you're putting your hope and your trust in Jerusalem that the temple of the Lord is here, and you're holding to that truth that the temple of the Lord is here. So he warns them, don't say that you have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Notice in Isaiah chapter 6, 3, the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. Now, if those things be true, there's a very obvious message there for me, right? What is it that the angels wanted to know? They wanted to know that, what did they want to convey? That God is indeed holy. And they're doing this to Isaiah the prophet, who, as I mentioned to you last week, Judah was just falling apart. Why? Because of prosperity. Under King Uzziah, Judah had become very prosperous. They had become very materialistic, but they kept their form of religion. So they would bring the sacrifices. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, God says, I'm tired of your sacrifices. Don't bring me your goats. Don't bring me your bulls. I'm tired of it. You people are far from my heart. But they kept ritualism. They kept 
tradition. And oh, by the way, they were also integrating into their worship pagan ways. God says, I don't want this. I think I shared with you last week Isaiah 118 where you see the mercy of God still in an obstinate people when he says, come, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins be red as, uh, as crimson, they shall be white like wool. Even in the midst of rebellion, God's mercy is extended. Even in the midst of the rebellion of this church, in the church in America, the Western church, even in rebellion, God is still going out with the gospel. God is still extending a hand. Come, repent, turn away, seek my face. Because if you do, I will forgive your sin and heal your land. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now you got to get the scene, right? I, I really want you to get the scene. Isaiah sees the Lord. That must have been terrifying in and of itself. Isaiah sees these six-winged creatures. Fly, that would have freaked me out. Flying back and forth. And they're crying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Holy of holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And look at verse 4. And the foundations trembled. It rocked all heaven. I don't know if you had the experience Thursday night about 3.30 in the morning, 4 in the morning. We had a bad storm come in through our town. And there was a, a, a lightning that, a, a thunder and a lightning that shook my house. I mean, I woke up out of bed. Boom! The whole thing shook. And notice what, what Isaiah the prophet is seeing here. He's seeing this, this powerful, and it's at the door. The, the temple is shaking. Everything is shaking at the voice of the angels that are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And I know that deep down inside, Isaiah's own being must have been shaken. We're going to see this in just a moment. But I think about how much more as we look at our God. Look, look at the vastness of God. Look at the glory of God. Look at the holiness of God. Do we honestly think that God has changed? Is He no longer this God? Or is He some feeble grandfather that sits up in heaven and, and everything runs around with chaos underneath? No, look at what's going on. And this is so consistent with other portions of Scripture. The Apostle John records, turn in your Bible, we just read it for Scripture reading, to Revelations chapter 4. Notice the Apostle John's description. You know, Apostle John said in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John said, when he saw the resurrected, glorified Christ, 
And he saw the white hair, and he saw him in his resurrected, glory, glorified form. John didn't go up to him and say, hey, man, it's cool to meet you, Jesus. Good to see you. The last time I left you, you were ascending. It's me, your buddy John. No, he saw him, and he fell at his feet as dead. Is dead. Look at Revelation 4-5. And from the throne, this is John's vision, from the throne proceeds flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. And there are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Go down to verse 8. And the four living creatures, notice this, each one of them having six wings. Oh, he's seeing the same thing, isn't he? Are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, listen to this, day and night, they do not cease to say, what do they do not cease to say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Oh man, John's vision is just like Isaiah's vision. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel had a very similar experience. Ezekiel chapter 1. Verse 13, as he sees it, in the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth. Did you imagine the scene? Back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright. And notice what he says. The lightning was flashing from the fire. This is an intimidating scene. It's a glorious scene, but it's an intimidating scene. And notice that these visions are all similar in that they testify to the awesomeness of God and His dwelling place. Listen, God reigns in power and might. The God of the Holy Scripture is not, as I mentioned to you, some feeble grandfather who is oblivious to His creation. He is not remote he is not inaccessible he is not a static figure he is god almighty who dwells in holiness and awesome glory and this is the god of the prophets this is the god of the saints this is the god of the martyrs and this is the god and i want to emphasize this of the believer in christ today he has not changed, not a single bit. And this is the God of the Holy Scriptures. And I want the church, and I want every believer to stop for a moment and behold your God as told forth in His Holy Word. Look at verse 5. Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking now, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. The King James says, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Note the response of Isaiah after witnessing this. It had to be both amazing, and it had to both be terrifying. At the same time, he did not say, wow, 
It's really good for me to be here, right? You hear all these books that are being written in Christendom of people that have gone to heaven. And, you know, they go to heaven. There's no amazement. You know, they, they see God. Hey, God. Hey, what's up, man? It's really good. You know, they see grandpa, grandma, mom, and dad. Right? It's a very casual approach. Does that sound like this? Not at all. This is both magnificent and terrifying at the same time. And I, you notice that Isaiah doesn't respond with any degree of casualness, any degree of, of selfishness, any degree of lukewarmness. Isaiah's response as he chronicles himself is what? Woe! Woe is me, for I am ruined. His response is immediately one. Woe is an, woe is an utterance. It's an utterance of impending judgment. It is an utterance that something bad is going to befall him. It is an emotion of grief and despair. Woe, we don't use that language anymore, right? But here you see the prophet Isaiah going, woe is me, and he says, I'm ruined. And that word means I am undone, I'm broken apart, I'm cut off, I'm destroyed, I cause to cease. And he sees himself in the holiness of God as breaking apart at the seams. You know, other godly men have had similar experiences as well. Remember, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 5. I just want to show you one of them that may be beneficial. Luke chapter 5. Here's the story, and if you look at verse 1, it says, Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by Lake uh, Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and washing their boats. This is Jesus. Now they were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the multitudes. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, I will let down your nets. Now, I want to I just draw your attention to that text, right? Basically, Peter is saying, you might be the preacher, but I'm the fisherman. All right? You may know the Bible, but I know how to fish. But because you told me to put out the net, I'll put out the net. There's a, there's a tone of sarcasm in there, right? He's not being obedient like, oh, you're telling me to put out the net? I'll put out the net. It's kind of a sarcasm that's in there, right? In verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break, and they signaled for their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. 
So Simon Peter, who thought, hey, the Lord knows nothing about fishing, all of a sudden is saying, I got more fish than I know what to do with. As a matter of fact, there's so many fish, my boat's going to sink. So some of the other guys, help me bring this fish into shore. But I want to call your attention to verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw, saw that, what did he do? He fell down at Jesus' feet. Now notice what he says. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now what made him do that? Is that he realized in the moment the divinity, the creative power, the awesome power of the Lord Jesus that before him was not an ordinary prophet, not an ordinary man, not an ordinary rabbi, not an ordinary teacher, but indeed God. And in that respective moment, in that respective moment, he said, I don't measure up. Go away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. Go back to... Isaiah chapter 6. Here we see in verse 5 the same response of Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am ruined. R.C. Sproul says this, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering, overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite. Notice these words. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation. You will be like God. What's the message that is being populated across the globe today. Unabashedly, by the way, by heretics that say, you are a little God. Little G, you're a little G, you're a God. As God became man, so man becomes God. As a matter of fact, that's at the center of all disobedience. I will not do as you say, God, because I am self-sufficient in myself, I am my God. The resistance to the gospel is I will not bow to you, Christ. I will not bow to you, God. Why? Because I'm good enough in and of myself. Isaiah here is contemplating, honestly contemplating that he is about to die as he faces the living judge of all the earth, the God of all creation. His sinful eyes have laid Hold of the holy, living God. And here's the thing. In that moment, his self-perceived righteousness in the light of God's holiness is nothing more than imperfect righteousness. And before him, now, now get this picture. Amidst the lightning, amidst the seraphim, amidst the cries of holy, 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 and everything shaking, and lightning, and thunder, and peals going on in the midst of this, before him is the living, sovereign, holy God. 
Let me tell you, I would have thought I was ruined. Remember Moses when he said to the Lord, hey, if you send me to these people, they're going to ask, what's the name of God? Who sent you? And he says, I am who I am. And Moses said, I want to see you. Remember the words of God to Moses, no man's going to see me and live, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will, I will pass over you with my, my backside. Yes, and so great was the glory of God upon Moses that he had to wear a veil and no one could look at him and that was just the backside. Here Isaiah stands in the throne room through a vision and he is before God Almighty. And who is there for him? He's there by himself. Notice that, notice that Yahweh radiates his holiness. It's radiated that the righteousness and truth, that his glory, his glory beams all of these virtues. The heavens are shaking. Lightning and thunder is echoing. Six-winged creatures are flying back and forth, crying out God's holiness. And there is Isaiah ben Hamuz. Standing before the throne of God in human flesh, sinful, unholy, imperfect, morally, spiritually. Is it any surprise that Isaiah utters such words? Now I'm going to tell you, there's a great ending to this. Because if it ended there, there would be no hope for anybody. You know, friend, there, there are some on earth, maybe some here today or someone listening to this message that are going to experience what Isaiah experienced. They also will stand before Adonai, the sovereign one. They will stand there in their unrighteousness just as Isaiah did. They will see the holiness of God and realize that they themselves do not measure up to God's holiness. But sadly, on that day, there will be no second chance. On that day, what Isaiah thought was the worst thought, woe is me, I am ruined, will become their eternal fate. There are those who have rejected the salvation offered through Jesus Christ. The finished work. Those who on earth thought more of their pleasures their conveniences, their careers, whatever it was, more than Christ and His salvation. My heart to here today is that no one here would ever know that. Acts 16.31 says this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Don't believe in the person of Jesus Christ that, that He existed historically. Believe and trust yourself to Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.15 says, Today when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke Me. And here's the twist. If you know you're not right with God, will you repent of your sins? Turn from yourself and turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And cry out to Him for forgiveness of sin. And that forgiveness is only offered through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ paid for your sins by paying your penalty on the cross. He endured the wrath of God that should have been poured out for you and for me. He endured it, he suffered, he died, was buried on the third day, he rose 
physically. He rose physically from the dead. Flesh and bone. He rose physically from the dead. Hey, over 500 people saw him. And you know what? Now he is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Listen, this was impressed upon me this week so much. Jesus is coming soon. I want to I reiterate this. I'm not talking about soon. This is a personal opinion. I'm not dogmatic. I'm not talking about soon that he's going to come in the next few hundred years. I'm talking about Jesus is coming soon. Real soon. And we as his people need to be prepared. Let us not be like those five foolish virgins. And you know the most glorious thing, and we're going to see it in this passage coming up, is that Christ defeated sin and death to all who turn from their sin and come by repentance and faith to Christ. Look with me in verse 5 a little bit more. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man undone. He, notice what he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The term here for unclean deals with the ethical, the religious, the moral uncleanliness. And in the holiness of God, maybe in that moment, that Isaiah realized what James writes about in James four eight, uh, James three nine, when he says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Out of it we make grace boast, and we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men made in the likeness of God. Isaiah knows this well. This problem of sinning, cursing, boasting with the tongue. It is not limited to him, but it is a problem of all fallen creatures. And he identifies. I want you to notice something. He not only says, I'm a man of unclean lips, but he goes on to say, I live among a people of unclean lips. Notice what Isaiah does. is He identifies the sin of his people with himself. We need more praying like that in the church. We need more praying like that in the Christian church, in the Western world, saying, hey, this world is, is falling apart. We live in it. There is abortion. There is all the other different sins of the day. And he makes this as part of himself. His heart at this very moment is being made ready by God. And he realizes that the Sovereign One, Yahweh, is the Holy One. And unbeknownst to Isaiah, in order to be made ready to, for God, he needs to be sanctified. Listen, the holiness of God, the very thing that he thought would kill him, will produce in this prophet of God two of the most important characteristics for a godly man or woman. Number one, a confessing heart. What does it mean to confess? It means that we agree with God and His righteousness. 
Isaiah, in this moment, God is fashioning him. God is making him. God is molding him. God is preparing him for the ministry that is before him. And what does he do? He fashions him. And the first thing he is, is a confessing heart. The second thing it's producing in Isaiah, the second principle, is a repentant heart. Let me say something about repentance. Repentance isn't something we do once. For the believer, we, li- we live repentant lifestyles. When we sin, we confess our sin. The Word of God tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is something that the Lord has put in the heart of the believer through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit so that we would be separate from the world, so that we would be sanctified, so that we would bear the image of Christ to an unsaved world. And notice at the end of verse 5, Isaiah makes it clear. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the King. And it's been this purity, this holiness that has been reflected back to me that brings me to this place of confession. To put it simply, I think Isaiah said, where am I going to hide? There's no place to hide. He knows my innermost thoughts. He knows my secret thoughts. He knows the intentions of why I do something. How holy is God that God's holiness would burn, that the fire of God's holiness would burn, and it exposes everything. But like I told you, it's not over for Isaiah. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to, the, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Praise God. The all-knowing, the all-pure Yahweh is going to act on behalf of Isaiah. Last week we stated that because God is holy, God's holiness is at the essence of our faith. Every other attribute of God derives itself from the holiness of God. God's mercy is perfect because God's holiness and God's intolerance of sin. God's love is perfect without sin or partiality predicated on his attributes. When God loves, he loves perfectly. God's perfect love, by the way, bears no record of wrong. Praise God. Lord, if you should mark our transgressions, who would stand, the prophet says. Which is why God offers salvation to the repentant sinner and is able to forgive. Listen to this. He is able to forgive every transgression and sin and iniquity committed by those who come to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, I don't know what that means to you, but that means an awful lot to me. And here we see What Isaiah lacked was a sanctified heart. And the high and exalted one, the eternal God, the great I am, recognizing the need, acts immediately to sanctify his prophet. God is about 
to set him apart. Let me share something. If you've come to faith in Christ, God is at work in you and God is willing through you to sanctify you and set you apart unto Him. And it is something that people will see. Unbelievers will see it. There goes a man. There goes a woman of God. There goes a young person of God. That person walks with God. The high and exalted one. The eternal God. The great I Am. Recognizing the need acts. I love this. Because that's what God did for me. That's what God did for you if you were in Christ. He acted. He saw the need. And through the Holy Spirit which indwells us, He works and He wills us, it says in Philippians, according to His good pleasure. We are His workmanship, as Paul tells Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2.10. We are His workmanship. And we are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God had foreordained that we should walk in them. And here we see the impact now of God's holiness on the life of the prophet Isaiah. One of the seraphim flies to the altar and takes a burning coal. Notice the, the angel doesn't go in with their hand. They have to take a coal. They have to take the tongs. And they take the tongs. And they fly over to... Could you imagine the terror here? Amidst everything that's going on, now you see this six-winged creature flying to you with a coal in the hand. It's getting closer and closer and closer. I would be like, whoa. It's getting closer and closer and closer until it touches his lips. And it makes Isaiah sanctified and right. And listen, in this narrative written by the Holy Spirit through Isaiah, we see several truths of what happens when we encounter a holy God. As I mentioned at the beginning, there are four truths. Number one, God's holiness produces a confessing heart. Number two, God's holiness produces a repentant heart. Number three, God's holiness produces a sanctified heart. And here's the best one. God's holiness produces a servant's heart. Isaiah needed to be purified. With purification, notice this, with purification came pain. You hear that one? With purification came pain. With sanctification comes pain pain with repentance comes pain notice where he touches him he touches him on the lips the lips are one of the most sensitive parts of the body when you want to show affection you kiss someone and here the angel applies the coal from the altar directly to the lips and sanctifies the mouth of the prophet. Listen, there can be pain with repentance, but repentance brings about godly sorrow that leads to right standing with God. And because of Isaiah's confessing, repenting, and now sanctified heart, Isaiah is now ready to be used of God 
and become a servant of the Most High God. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. By the way, notice Lord there. Uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D. Who is he talking about? I deny the sovereign one. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, I've heard a lot of messages about this, particularly missions-oriented. And, and it's good. I'm, I, don't, I don't have... That's not a negative statement. That's a positive statement. But I want to call your attention to a few things here. Number one, the prophet of God is prepared. The one who saw the holiness of God and who cried out, Woe is me, is now fit and ready to be used in the hands of God. The one who said, woe is me, that I have a filthy mouth, I have a profane mouth, I have a, a profanity spew out of it, now will become the mouthpiece to the nation of God Almighty. Upon hearing the thunderous voice of the Lord, by the way, the voice that is described elsewhere, it's the voice of many waters, who will go for us? Isaiah makes a great statement. He says, Here am I. Send me. R.C. Sproul says this about that statement. He said, if, if, if Isaiah would have said, Here I am, all he would have been stating is, This is my location, Lord. Send me. But that's not what he says. He says, Here am I. I, no hiding, Lord. This is me. Send me. And notice this. R.C. Sproul makes a great statement. He said, God was, listen to this. I really want you to get this. God was able to take a shattered man and send him into the ministry. He took a sinful man and he made him a prophet. He took a man with a dirty mouth and made him God's spokesperson the ministry by the way that god was sending isaiah into was not an easy one he was going to go to an obstinate people who will not by the way heed his words there will not be great followings there will not be many if any converts he will not be revered and admired by the nation for the most part Judah will not repent. I want you to notice this. Judah will not repent. This is 740 B.C. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians will enter Jerusalem. They will take captive the, the finer young men and the young people and the talented people, bring them to Babylon, and then they will desecrate the temple of God during the day of Jeremiah. Judah despite this, would not listen. And this is what God tells them. You're going to go to a people that are going to hear, but they're not going to listen. They're going to see, but they're not going to be able to perceive. And what was Isaiah's reward? Church history records that Isaiah, Ben Hamuz, for his faithfulness, was sawn in two 
till he died. What was Isaiah's true reward? Well, he had everlasting life. He received the crown of eternal life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of faithfulness, and a martyr's crown. And got to see his Lord say, job well done, good and faithful servant. You see, our encounter with the Most Holy God is designed to change believers into the image of Christ and to become that kingdom of priests that God has for every believer in Christ. And it will produce in believers a confessing heart, a a repentant heart, a sanctified heart, and a servant's heart. There's no doubt about the holiness of Uh, There's no doubt that a believer in Christ serves a holy and righteous God. Our God is holy. Our God is awesome. Our God is terrifying. Our God is just. And our God, as we saw in the case of Isaiah, is merciful. And a mercy knows no end. I want to close with this statement from Charles Spurgeon regarding the impact of holiness on the believer in Christ. Spurgeon says this, Christ will be master of the heart and sin must be mortified. If your life is unholy, then your heart is unchanged and you are an unsaved person. The Savior will sanctify His people, renew them, give them a hatred of sin and a love of holiness. The grace that does not make a man better than others is worthless and counterfeit. Christ saves His people Not in their sins, but from their sins. And without holiness, no man will see God. So I guess the question for all of us is, are we ready to be used by God? Are we willing to be chosen, refined vessels before God? And I pray, it's my prayer, that we all would come to know the God of the Scriptures. Not the God of our imagination. Not the God who some guy on TV tells us. Not the God of a YouTube video. But the God of the Holy Scriptures. And that our hearts would be bowed in awe to Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You and we bless You and praise You for Your goodness and righteousness and mercy to us. And Father, as we've seen in the Scriptures, You are indeed holy, righteous, just, true. You are all-powerful. And quite frankly, Lord, when we pray for revival and we ask for revival, Lord, we ask, Lord, that we could get a glimpse of that glory. That Your church would shine vibrantly in the world. That the glory of God would consume Your church. Lord, that the glory of God would consume this place. So we praise you and thank you, Lord. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.